Last night, um, coincidentally, uh, after having already prepared my sermon, I noticed uh, there was the uh, World Championships of the Track and Field on last night. Anybody see that? The World Champions track, Championships of Track and Field and the 100-meter dash for the men. Um, I was going to lead with that today, and then it happened last night. Um, a couple of years ago, after the 2012 Olympics, I read a really interesting article uh, about the progression of Olympic records over time. And I think you probably noticed this too, even just casually, how the athletes keep raising the bar. And you know, I would I'd shudder to think where I would be on that track <laughs> at the time that Usain Bolt crossed the finish line uh, in a record 9.63, which is time in 2012, but as little as 9.58 time. The, the article I read illustrated, is a New York Times article, uh, illustrated the, that extremely high bar of success, uh, the increasingly high bar. They compared Usain Bolt with the times of all the previous gold and all the medalists uh, throughout time. So if you remember seeing that picture of, of Bolt when he crossed the line in 2008, uh, he was strides ahead of the others. The, they're all in a, in a pack. So even the fastest man in the world they couldn't have kept up with them. Any other time in history, they would have been gold or silver medalists, but they couldn't catch Bolt that night. Uh, but if you look uh, throughout history, the winner uh, in 1988, Carl Lewis, when, at the time when Usain Bolt crossed the line, Carl Lewis would have still been nine and a half feet behind him the time he won gold with. Or if you look all the way back to 1936, Jesse Owens, famous sprinter, he would have been a full 21 feet from the finish line at the time that Usain Bolt crossed the finish line for the gold. That, that bar just keeps being raised, the threshold of success, the best of the very best is very, very high. And speaking of, of the high bars, the same is true of the high jump. When they first started recording the world records for the high jump in 1912, the world record was exactly six meters. That's six feet, six and a half, or six and three quarters inches tall. So taller than me. I'm not six feet. Um, the current world record is eight feet and a half an inch. I think I would have to have a pole to vault over that. Um, do you ever feel like the bar might be too high for you? Maybe different places in your life. The expectations on you are, are too high. Uh, they're unrealistic. I was just talking with someone who said that uh, his workplace is adding new standards, and they're just unrealistic standards of performance. They're, they're constantly uh, not meeting the expectations. Uh, maybe they felt like the Israelites way back when, you know, when uh, they were making bricks for Pharaoh. Pharaoh took their straw away, but he still kept that quota up high. It was an unrealistic expectation to meet. Do you ever feel that about your Christian life? You just can't keep up, you're, you're trying, but you feel like you are just barely on the track, you're taking one step at a time, nowhere close to what the expectation is, nowhere near that high bar. Uh, you, you know that you're supposed to be growing like Christ, uh, but it's, you're far behind. You're not just far behind Jesus, but far behind other Christians, maybe, you feel. Those really spiritual people you know, who they, they read and pray all the time and they open their mouth and their memorized scripture just flows out. Maybe you think about the Apostle Paul like that. <laughs> We're nowhere near that. Um, 
we're just going to take more of a look at the Apostle Paul this morning and more of what he wrote to the Corinthians. Um, it's, it's an explanation of a couple different things that, that Paul was really concerned about for the, for the church there. Uh, things that Paul cared about very deeply. And I, and I wonder if the Corinthians were, were thinking maybe, Paul, just, just calm down. You know, it, you care about this very much, but we can't be expected to, to know everything that you do or be held to the same high standard. We're just normal Christians. Maybe they were thinking that. Maybe that's a little bit of speculation. Well, let's, let's look at the text this morning and understand more of what's going on, what Paul is talking about. We're going to read a, an extended session, uh, section from chapter 1, verse 23, on down to chapter 2, verse 11 this morning. As Paul says, But I call God to witness against me. It was to spare you that I refrained from coming again to Corinth. Not that we lorded over your faith, but we work with you for your joy, for you stand firm in your faith. For I made up my mind not to make another painful visit to you. For if I caused you pain, who is there to make me glad but one whom I have pained? As I wrote as I did, and I wrote as I did, so that when I came again, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. For I felt sure of all of you that my joy would be the joy of you all. For I wrote to you out of much affliction and anguish of heart, and with many tears, not to cause you pain, but to let you know the abundant love that I have for you. Now, if anyone has caused pain, he has caused it not to me, but in some measure, not to put it too severely, to all of you. For such a one as this, the punishment by the majority is enough. So you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him. For this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything. Anyone whom you forgive, I also forgive. Indeed, what I have forgiven, I have forgiven anything, has been for your sake in the presence of Christ, so that we would not be outwitted by Satan, for we are not ignorant of his plans, of his designs." There's a lot going on in these verses. Let's pray and ask for God's help to understand and apply these verses this morning. God, we pray that you would give us wisdom, you would give us understanding from your word this morning. I pray that you would be pleased to use my words to bring light to your eternal word into our hearts this morning. We pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. So let's understand what's happening here. Paul's saying a lot of things. It's kind of hard to sort them all out. You know what it's like when you walk up to people who are talking and you have no idea what they're talking about. That's kind of like dropping into these verses. Uh, Paul had planned to visit the church in Corinth again. He had visited them. He had been there when they planted the church. Uh, he had gone back to visit them when they were having issues that he came to confront them on. Uh, and that just did not go well. It's what he says, a painful visit there uh, in the, these verses. He said he didn't want to have another painful visit. He had told them he had planned to come again after this painful visit, but he hasn't done that yet. And this kind of rankles the Corinthians, uh, especially the, the people there, the false apostles who are opposed to Paul. They're trying to use this against him. He said he was going to come again, and he's not yet. And a couple weeks ago, uh, Dr. Brown preached about this and explained one of the reasons that Paul said, I wasn't able to come, is you know, God didn't allow it. This was God's sovereign plan that I have not been able to be there yet. In these verses this morning, we're getting another part of Paul's explanation. Uh, another reason that he refrained from coming to them yet was because, as he says, it, he wanted to spare them. It was motivated by compassion for them, for their joy, uh, he said in verse 24. 
But he's still writing this letter. He's not just explaining his absence, but he's also still trying to attend to the issues that are there. He's still calling for repentance for those who have sinned. Uh, And then he calls on the rest of the church to forgive them. So that's kind of the the big picture scope. Um, Let's kind of walk through it a little bit more from the perspective of the people on the ground. I think maybe the, the Corinthians were tempted to think maybe this isn't as big of a deal as Paul's making it. Maybe, maybe you're thinking that as you're reading this. Why are we going through all of these different ways that Paul's explaining that? You know, I kind of thought that at some level too as I was sorting through the verses and we already had a sermon about Paul's reason for not coming. Um, you know, some of the people have repented. Can't we just move on? Um, can't we just get past this? Maybe they were thinking, do we really have to do the really serious things of repentance and, and forgiveness And maybe they're asking, Paul, are you really doing this for our good? You're saying that, but are you just adding spiritual language to cover your your travel plans? Can't you just say that you were scared to come or just that your boat ride got canceled? That that could have just been the explanation. Why is Paul being so spiritual about it? He's taking three paragraphs to explain in theological language why he hasn't visited them yet. They and we might think Paul's expectations are, are pretty high to, to think about the church and respond to the church in this way. And I, I think that's a really real thing. It, it's, not a, it's not a surprise in, in Scripture that Paul has a very high view of the Christian life, a very high view of the church. He has high expectations for Christians, uh, for us. If we're speaking just of what Paul says, the expectations are high. But as we look at that this morning, we're also going to look, but the grace is free, and I think that should be an encouragement to us. Maybe, maybe you're not thinking those thoughts that I'm assuming. Maybe you're not thinking that's above me. Maybe you're just tracking right along. You're agreeing with everything Paul says and everything he cares about, and that's great. Praise the Lord. Uh, the application, though, is still the same for you, too, as we look at these things. Uh, We're going to kind of look through the eyes of Paul, the eyes of the Corinthians, see how we live and think day to day, how we conduct ourselves and what we should expect of the church because of what's happening here. And when we look at the high expectation of the New Testament, and especially here, we should first of all understand that we should think highly of the church. We should hold the church high, highly value it. Paul is spending a lot of time talking about things that we may think are not important, but he's doing it because he loves the church, and he holds it high. He's even explaining his travel plans is ultimately because of his theology of the church. He was explaining why he wasn't able to visit so that they don't think he's a flake and that what he taught them doesn't matter, so that they don't think that all the conflict that they have with him is not a big deal that it doesn't matter, because it does matter. The church matters, and and what gospel is preached in the church matters. And who God says are supposed to preach in the church and lead the church matters. And that's what was at stake in Corinth. The church being confused about, about who to follow and who to listen to matters. We've been imagining Paul this morning, you know, maybe You might have thought he's obsessed, maybe someone who's gone down the rabbit hole of his study, and he's just reading and writing. He's writing research papers that no one ever reads. Maybe, sometimes I think, 
if I sat down with Apostle Paul, it might be someone to be kind of difficult to talk to at a party. How do you strike up a conversation with him? Is he going to talk about the weather? Is he going to talk about sports? Or is he just going to talk about doctrine and theology? Maybe someone we would describe as so heavenly minded that he's of no earthly good. Um, but I hope you understand that that's not really a true thing, right? Right theology, right doctrine, being rightly heavenly minded should make you of immense earthly good, like it did Paul. He's not just crazy about doctrine and theology, he loves people. He has what my commentary described as a theologically driven love for people and for the church. Everything he writes about in this book is because he cares so much for the church because of his theology, what he believes about it. He has a theological justification for everything, even why he didn't visit them. And he's not just Jesus juking, for those of you who don't know what that is, that's taking something that's not a conversation about Jesus and uncomfortably making it about Jesus, uh, like someone who says, oh, you're an organ donor, huh? Why don't you give your life to Jesus? Or give, I'm sorry, give your heart to Jesus. Yeah, bomb the, the delivery there. <laughs> give your heart to Jesus, organ donor, heart, get it? Yeah, an awkward transition into a conversation about Jesus. Um, that's not what Paul's doing. He, he thinks through everything in his life through a theological lens. He has theological glasses on it, and when he does, it gives him a very clear picture of the church, and he holds that church very high. He ordered his life around it. It's what he did, what he said, and why he did everything. The more he knew about the church, the more he loved it, and the more he wanted to fight for it. He's doing what he told the Ephesian elders to do in Acts chapter 20. In Acts chapter 20, he said, care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. 20 verse 28. And also, this wasn't just pet, Paul's pet project. It wasn't just something he cared about and no one else did, that he was unhealthily obsessed with. He had a high view of the church because God did, right? God has a high view of the church. Paul did. God has a high view of the church. It's not God's pet project or not just his hobby. It's not just God's Sunday thing. How do we know how much God loves the church? He sent his son to die for the church. Jesus Christ, God the Son, died for the church. Ephesians 5 speaks of this. It says, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. Later in that chapter, Ephesians 5, verse 25, speaking to husbands, it says, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. God loves the church. He sent his son to die for the church. 1 Peter 1, 17 speaks of this. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your fathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. This verse is saying, if you know Jesus, if you call on him as Father, if you call on the Father, if you belong to the church, conduct yourselves with fear. If you belong to the body of Christ, act like Jesus died to make you part of his body. 
live in a way that shows that the precious blood of Jesus was spent to make this group of people a church. Jesus didn't shed his precious blood for something that doesn't really matter. When you live like that, you're part of what God is doing in his master plan. This is the thing that God is working on right now. He told his disciples in Matthew 16, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. This is what God is doing and the cosmic scheme of good versus evil, the gates of hell and heaven. God is building his church and we can live in a way that shows this is what God is doing and this is precious to him. We should think highly of the church. And that's a high bar. It's a high bar, but it's, it's not too high. This is not just upper-level theology for the apostles or pastors or seminary professors. This love for the church is for everyone who belongs to the church. And for many of you, it is that. Many of you live like that. Many of you invest yourself in the church more than just one hour on a Sunday. Many of you, you make plans around your commitments to the church. You build relationships with people Throughout the week, your, your life is different from those who don't belong to the church. And I'm thankful for that. I think that that is what Paul is going for here. I want to think with you, maybe you're thinking, what can I do to love the church more? If I'm supposed to love it, I'm supposed to have that high view of the church. Let me give you just a few quick suggestions what you can do to raise your estimation of the church, to, to love the church more. Read the book of Acts. Read the book of Acts. See how much God was at work to make this church what it's supposed to be. Make a list of ways that God has used the church in your life. A, ways of things, a list of things that you can be thankful for when it comes to the church. I think that will increase your love for the church. Choose to serve in the church. You tend to highly value what you invest in, right? Choose to serve. Read some more of Paul's epistles. Paul writes to many churches and his love for the church is on display. Talk to people in the church. Hear their stories of how God has used the church in their life, young and old, And if we have a high view of the church, that means that we should have a strong defense for the church. We should be on guard. And this is something that Paul is asking of the Corinthians, to be watchful and to turn away from what they let in through the door. Uh, it's no overstatement to say that there are things in this world that are a threat to the church. God will build his church the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but there are enemies of the church that can do some significant damage. And we need to be watchful for those. That's why Paul closes this section in verse 11 by explaining his concerns are so great so that we would not be outwitted by Satan's designs. God will not be outwitted by Satan's design, but we may be. We want to be on guard. You know, we normally protect the things that are valuable to us. It's one thing to say we highly value it. Normally in our life, that means we protect it, right? You probably have a safe or a safety deposit box in a bank, right? You build a strong house. You might put a fence around your place. You probably put mothballs in your closet, right? 
You may have a password protector or an anti-malware software on your computer. We need a strong protection. Our, our church needs to have a strong immune system or a strong gag reflex. Sorry for that mental imagery. Not to spit people out that we don't like, but to have a strong filter, to be watchful for what poses a danger to the church. And what poses the danger? What was Paul concerned about? First of all, primarily, false gospels and the false messengers of those gospels. Later in the book, he expands on that more, chapter 11. He said, if someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, and he criticizes them here, he says, you put up with it readily enough. These people were glad to hear other gospels and hear people preach about a different Jesus than Paul preached, and that's not a good thing. And there are those gospels out there. There are other Jesuses being proclaimed and other gospels. And Paul specifically wanted them to be on guard for the people who associated themselves with those gospels. They came from outside and they came from within the Corinthian church. We're surrounded by those false gospels. You might be tempted to think those are on the, the radical fringe, but they weave their way through our culture and even our Christian culture. They're close to us. They get, they're close, they get weaseled in through have-truths that sound good to Christian ears. We need to be careful for those. But there are softer false messages, not just false gospels, but other untruths that we might hear, and we might even hear from our own heart about the church. You know, maybe you, you think to yourself, the church really shouldn't preach about those things. That's kind of harsh. That's really too judgmental. Maybe you think the church shouldn't talk about money. Maybe you might think and hear this from your own heart that you really don't have to be committed like all the other people. You don't have to serve. You've done your time. Maybe you're tempted to think, you know, when they say that the church is supposed to be everyone working to build it up, maybe you think you're the exception to that. You're the exception to the parable of the talents where God has blessed everyone and expects them to use what he has blessed them with. There are those untruths like that that we hear and they're reinforced from our own heart, unfortunately. But on another level, you know, big picture gospel issues, other untruths, there's kind of a third category in my mind that we see that Paul's dealing with. We should just not be comfortable with confusion in the church. There is confusion in Corinth about what the gospel was, who was in charge, and whether or not they should listen to Paul. We should not be comfortable with confusion in the church about what the church is, what the church's mission is. Is this just a Sunday gathering of do-gooders? Is this just to pump you up for the week until you come back again? We shouldn't be confused about what ministries the church should or, or shouldn't do, about who belongs to the church, who's inside, who's outside. This is not just what apostles care about or pastors the whole church should not be comfortable with confusion in the church. And as Paul looks at the Corinthians and asks them to do, we also should be ready to repent when we're wrong. Sorry, there is that verse. We should repent if needed. Paul had some, some significant opposition to speak to. He had false apostles who had gathered uh, a gathering against Paul. 
Uh, and he was really needing to confront that. It was a, a really hard thing he was anticipating, something that was going to cause him pain. Um, and that's why he was not going there right away, but that's why he's still writing. He's still calling for a repentance. You look with me in verse 9 of chapter 2. He said, this is why I wrote, that I might test you and know whether you are obedient in everything, everything that he's already asked them to turn away from these false teachers. He's asking, are you obedient? Have you turned away from them? That's why I'm still writing for, to you. And, and we need to be ready to repent too whether it's for big or small misunderstandings about the church. You know, certainly, if we ever preach a false gospel or align ourselves with a false teacher, we need to repent of that. Or if we ever resist the leadership God has placed in the church like the Corinthians did, that needs to be repented of. And when we say repent, that doesn't necessarily mean some big formal proclamation or some process or anything like that. At the root level, repent means change your mind. You need to fix what's wrong inside your head if it's leading you to go against God's design for the church. You need to change your thinking. But there are other things in the church, not just the big, big ticket items, but other things. And it's not just an if we get something wrong, it's, it's when we get something wrong, we need to repent of that. You know, it, it's pretty unrealistic to think that we can go about our normal ch church life without there being anything that we need to fix or resolve or, or repent of. Gathering a bunch of sinners on a regular basis and asking them to, to do things together and do the same thing with all the different thoughts we have, all the different preferences we have for, for music and how things are supposed to run and who's supposed to do this or that. There's inevitable conflict and differences of opinion. And, and then you add sin on top of that uh, and there are going to be things that we need to repent of. We need to change our mind and our hearts about. I remember when I was in college, um, I was learning, growing, learning a bunch, you know, theology classes all the time. And as normally happens in college, you think you've learned so much that you might be close to knowing it all, right? Um, and I was really excited about uh, this book that I had read about evangelism. And it, by God's grace, I, I was motivated to, to do a lot of evangelism. Um, but I was serving in a church while I was up there at Norwalk, and I was helping out with the youth ministry. And I was really excited about this book, and I wanted to teach it. Uh, but the, the pastor of the church wisely saw some weaknesses in the book. It was a really formulaic type of, of book, uh, a presentation that wasn't really much on grace. It was really heavy on the law. And he really didn't want me teaching that to the youth group. And, and he was wise about that. Uh, and he also didn't want me to be believing those things about evangelism. And so he patiently helped me walk through that. And, and I had to repent, in a sense, to change my mind about what I thought about evangelism. I had gotten excited about it, but excited about some things that weren't really helpful. Uh, and he had to help me see that. He, he helped me repent and change my mind about that. Maybe you even you need to repent about your thinking that you don't need to repent about anything. You need to change your mind about whether or not you need to change your mind about things. It's, it's okay to have an opinion, but not if it stands in contra contrast to God's word. Or maybe you're just used to things blowing over. You say your peace, and so do they, and it's done, and that's just how we get things done in the church. That's not the picture of the New Testament, of how things are resolved in the, in, in the church. 
So again, it may not be a public repentance. It may not even be to another person. Maybe it's just you and God, and you let your mind be changed by his word about what you should do in the church, what your expectations should be of the church. The expectations are high. God loves the church. He has a picture of how it's supposed to work and how how we are supposed to be a part of it, what we're supposed to be inside the church. The bar is high, but the grace is free. God doesn't just leave us with a high bar. He gives us grace. I hope this is an encouraging part of this to you. The grace is free, and we see that how this plays out in Paul and the Corinthians exchanges here. Uh, there is the grace of God's patience. Paul explained to the Corinthians that he was not going to visit them because he wanted to spare them. What did he want to spare them? He wanted to spare them some really hard things, and so instead he was going to be patient. So not showing up on their doorstep right then but writing a letter instead and and planning to show up later was a demonstration of Paul's patience and uh, really a biblical picture of of God's patience. But this is really the thrust of of what Paul was trying to communicate here. Um, If Paul had visited in in person, if he had done what he planned and, and gone there, he expected that he would still find many of them in rebellion, unrepentant in their sin. He'd be saying the same things to them as he's saying now, but he was going to be face to face with them. And he was really would be forcing the issue. If he had been there in person, he would have been saying, choose right now. Are you going to repent and follow me as God designed, or are you going to stay in your sin and be disciplined out of the church? That's, that's what it would have been if he had showed up on their doorstep. And he would have been right to do that if they were rejecting God's authority. Uh, but he described that he did not want to cause them that pain. He also comments that he didn't want that pain for himself. Verse 2 and 3, if I cause you pain, how is there, who is there to make me glad but the one whom I have pained? And I wrote as I did, so that when I came, I might not suffer pain from those who should have made me rejoice. And uh, trying to understand what Paul's saying there, I don't think he's saying it's about me. You know, it would have been really uncomfortable for me to have this conversation, so I'm just going to avoid it. I don't think that's what Paul's talking about. He could have forced the issue. He could have showed up there and said, I am an apostle of Christ. You need to follow me, and if you don't, you're wrong. And if, he, if they had repented, they got in line, that would have been the right thing to do. But Paul is saying that wouldn't have brought him joy to have to confront them and force them by his authority to get in line. That wouldn't have brought him joy in ministry. The joy that he would rather see in ministry is to be patient with them and see them turn in repentance on their own. And that's the joy he's looking for in this ministry. They should bring him that joy by acting in that way. So so Paul is still writing the same message. He's just not doing it face to face. He's not forcing the issue. He's giving them time to repent before he gets there in person. And... uh, this is a picture of God's patience with us, God's patience with us. If you remember, God gave the first law to humanity, and he told Adam and Eve, of the tree of the knowledge of the fruit of sorry, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat, because on the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. 
and what happened on the day that they ate it. They did not die. There was a spiritual death. They were separated from God, but the physical death that came with sin was not visited on Adam and Eve right away. God could, in his justice, look at every sin that Adam and Eve committed and every other human being and say, the moment you sin, you deserve to die. But God doesn't do that. God looks at sinners and he has patience for them. He allows them to breathe another day for an opportunity for them to repent. This is pictured in the fact that it took thousands of years from the first sin for God to bring about justice in the cross. There are thousands of years for people to understand that God was going to do something about their sin and to be pictured throughout the Old Testament and then to be seen at Jesus on the cross. And from the time that Jesus brought justice and then forgiveness in Jesus Christ, there's still been thousands of years and maybe more for people to repent. You and I have been given time to see the cross and repent of our sin and not be judged right away because God is patient. In 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, it says, The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise for justice, as some count slowness, but he is patient toward you. He's not wishing that anyone should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Paul mentions here, too, in his, in his description that he wants, to, he wants to still hold them to account, but he doesn't want to lord it over them. He said in verse 23, not that we lord it over your faith. What, what, what would lording authority be and why is Paul saying that here? The New Testament speaks of leadership and authority in the church, you know, apostles and pastors of the churches after the apostles, and it, and it reminds those leaders not to lord their authority. But in the New Testament, that's not a question of whether or not those people have authority or what they have authority over, but it's a question of how they use their authority and why they use their authority. So Paul could have exercised his apostolic authority in a way that was really harsh and overbearing and it would ultimately make him look good, look like the super apostle that came in and vanquished all the false apostles. He does have the right to speak to all aspects of their life with apostolic authority, because God's word speaks to that. It's not a question of whether he has the authority, but how he's going to use it. And he's wanting to approach them in this other, more patient way, not lording it over them, not demanding obedience right away. And it's similar to how he uh, approached Philemon. You remember Brandon preached through the book of Philemon several weeks ago. Um, You saw in there how Paul addressed Philemon. He said in verse 8 and 9, Though I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required, yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. He could have just told Philemon, do it, I'm an apostle, Jesus said. But he wants to appeal to love, and that's what he's trying to do with the Corinthians here. And maybe you understand that as a parent, young children, or even as adult children. You still have a store authority to speak to your child, but you want to cultivate in them a desire to obey without you having to tell them everything to do all the time. And as adult children, you still have authority to speak to their life, but you want to give them freedom as an adult to exercise their wisdom on their own. You want to reach their heart and appeal to their love. And the church, 
we the church, we don't just submit to pastors. The Bible says we submit to each other. We have a responsibility to speak truth to each other and hold each other accountable. But that doesn't mean that we just throw God's word in people's faces and say, hey, you're in sin. We exercise the same type of patience. We, we, we speak truth to people in their lives when, when they are sinning or when they're weak. But we do it with patience so that we give them opportunity to, to grow and respond out of their own motive for obedience. So Paul is not lording it over them. This is also not Paul just tolerating them. This is not Paul saying, I'm not going to force the issue, I'll just kind of hang back. He's still writing to them, forcing the issue. He's still calling to them to obedience, repentance. He's not lowering the high bar that they don't really have to take him seriously or God's word seriously. He's still holding that bar high, but he's coming and meeting them where they're at. And that's what grace is. It's not looking down from the high bar of God's expectations with condemnation. Grace is not lowering the bar so everyone's happy. Grace is holding the bar high and then lowering oneself to where others are at and raising them up to meet that bar. That's what Jesus Christ did in his grace to us. He lowered himself to the level of a human so that he could raise us up to be like him, to meet the high bar of God's righteousness. And and bound up in all of that picture of God's grace is this other thing, the grace of forgiveness, the grace of God's patience to us, but also the grace of his forgiveness. Paul asks the Corinthians to forgive those who have sinned. He said in verse 6, For such a one, this punishment by the majority is enough, so you should rather turn to forgive and comfort him, or he may be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. Paul cares about even these people who have turned against him. So I beg you to reaffirm your love for him, in verse 8. There was sin in Corinth, and Paul was not just content to leave it at that. He called for repentance, but he wasn't just content to leave it at that. Then he called for forgiveness. And it was forgiveness for those who had caused the problem in the church. It wasn't just for Paul, back in verse 5, if anyone has caused pain, he caused it really not to me, but to all of you. Paul understood that even though they were rebelling against him, they were causing damage to the church. So he wanted the church to forgive them for their rebellion against God's ordained authority. And Paul is looking for that restoration. He's looking for forgiveness because that's part of God's plan for the church. The good news of Jesus Christ is that sinners can be forgiven and not just one time. Not just because God is nice and he'll just wave a magic magic wand and all is forgiven, but because sin was paid for on the cross in Jesus Christ. And those who put their faith in Christ have their sins forgiven. They're they're no longer guilty. But it's not just that one-time forgiveness. God understands that those he has gathered into the church, he's forgiven them, but we're still sinners. And we need ongoing forgiveness. We're not perfect yet. We still sin. And so forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness is built into the design of the church. It's part of the program. The bar is high, but we were never meant to reach it alone. And we were never meant to reach it without failing and needing to be forgiven, needing God's grace. The need for repeated forgiveness from God and for each other is part of the design for the church.
And we're reminded from Colossians chapter 3. We bear with one another and if one has a complaint against another, we should forgive each other as the Lord has forgiven you. So you must also forgive. If we have tasted the forgiveness of our sins, not just once, but over and over as we sin, we forgive each other. Because we have been forgiven in Christ, we forgive each other. So, whether all this is something where you think it's above my head, that's a high bar, the expectations are too great, or if you think, yep, I agree, (laughs) the message is the same for you. We hold the church high. And we should increase our love for the church. That's what Jesus died for. We should be on guard for whatever might be a danger to the church outside and inside, inside ourselves even. And we should be ready for when we get it wrong. We should be ready to repent individually or the whole church, big or small. And we should be patient and forgiving with each other if and when we get it wrong. God has been so patient to us. He's forgiven more than we will ever be called on to forgive another person. We should exercise that towards each other. We're gonna sing about that just a moment. Oh, to be like thee, tender, forgiving. We want to forgive like Jesus forgives. Let's pray. Oh, we thank you for this day. We thank you for these truths. We thank you for this, this difficult story from the Corinthians from long ago and that we can learn how we should live in the church, the church that you died for. Pray that we would hold it high. Pray that we would be like Jesus as we are patient and forgiving with each other. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.